support the show by donating at themusicbuds.com. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Music Buds podcast. This is episode number 29, and my name is Henry. This week, I'm honored to be joined by composer Jason Graves, known for his work on the Dead Space video game franchise, Tomb Raider in 2013, The Order, 1886, Far Cry Primal. I mean, the list goes on and on. Jason, uh, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I have really loved your work for years, and so I, it means a lot for, for you to be here. Oh, it's my, my pleasure, Henry. Thank you very much. Of course. Well, uh, how's life these days? You know, all things considered, life is great. Thank you. It's funny because um, as composers, we basically spend all day in a dark room by ourselves. And in lieu or uh, in spite of recent events, I'm still spending a lot of time in a dark room by myself. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, we're, we're sort of isolated anyway. We, we moved from the uh, city, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. We moved from Raleigh out to the country about four years ago and um, mm. kind of started self-quarantining back then, not uh, intentionally whatsoever, but we're on a big piece of like 30 acres of property and around the property there's woods and, and farmland. So it's sort mm. of like self-isolating um, just because we love nature and, and animals. So it hasn't been, you know, that much of a, a change in terms of day-to-day life, although obviously it's devastating and, and not good everywhere. But all things considered, I am great. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. I, one thing I should mention is, so you, you said you, were, you used to live in Raleigh? North Carolina. Everyone thinks uh, I'm, I'm always in LA, but I'm in North Carolina. I'm uh, in Hillsboro. No about way. About 45 minutes away from, from Raleigh. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. This is my hometown. <laughs> well, so. well that, okay then. Um, well, there you go. That's fantastic. So, um, yeah. Well, yeah. So I'm in Benson, basically. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> small world. <laughs> no kidding. It, it is a small world. I'm, I'm used to everyone assuming that I'm in Los Angeles, which is totally fine. I don't have a problem with that, but I don't think I've mm. ever, sometimes there's an East coast connection, maybe New York or Georgia or even Canada on the East coast. But I don't know if I've ever had a North Carolina, like, I mean, you're like less than an hour away, probably. That's crazy. Cool. It is. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, I guess the first thing I wanted to ask is how did you get into to music? Because uh, I feel like especially with composing, there are, you know, a million different ways people get in into that field. I think um, so. I'm not one of those like I started playing the piano when I was two or anything like that. Or one of those, you know, I grew up uh, my family was in music all the time. Um, now, my my dad it did play guitar a little bit like in college and my mom played piano and handbells. And, um, my dad also did drums in high school, I believe. So all of that was a little bit of me, um, having a piano in the house and messing around when I was little and then taking some piano lessons and not really liking it and stopping. And then in middle school, the uh, middle school band director, all of her drummers were graduating at the same time. So she needed drummers. And I remember thinking, my dad played drums. That sounds like that could be really fun. And I just started taking lessons and learning, kind of reading music and uh, practicing and all that stuff. And then it just took off from there. It just kept with more and more lessons, started taking piano lessons again in high school. Then I was taking like vibraphone lessons because I was into drums and percussion, drum set lessons and snare drum lessons, singing lessons. I did musicals like in middle school and elementary school. Um, so it's kind of already always been a performance kind of thing for me, even when I was doing commercials. Mm -hmm. Uh, or plays or musicals, like in elementary school, I was singing and dancing, um, much to the chagrin of my middle school self. 
you know, being made fun of all the time by the boys. Sure. Uh, cause I'm taking singing lessons and dancing lessons and all that, but I loved it, especially tap. Like I really mm. identified with tap dance and, um, went the first year I was in, I went from the intro to tap class to the advanced tap class. And I was in middle school dancing with people who were seniors in high school, but there was just something oh, about wow. that rhythm. Right. And I think that's part of the drummer in me that sort of started coming out and it just snowballed from there, you know, lessons and studying and music composition and listening to classical music, listening to film music. But I think tap dance might be, you know, I might need to charge you. Um, I mean, you might need to charge me for some psychological analysis. I think that maybe tap dancing might've been like the gateway drug to music for me. And that was back in, I mean, like fifth or sixth grade, probably. Wow. Uh, now, bef- before all that, uh, did you were you someone who I- enjoyed or kind of uh, noticed the, the the music and and video games and, and movies? You know, TV was that something you or was that, or did that kind of come after the the music really hit you? I, my earliest memory of noticing the music was probably ET, and I think mm. that was I don't know. It was probably around the same time I was doing tap uh, dance lessons and piano lessons and things. But I remember thinking the first like 10 minutes of the movie, there's no dialogue, but all this exposition happens, right? All this story takes place Mm -hmm. and characters are introduced and things develop. And the same thing with the last probably 10 or 12 minutes of the movie from the bike chase to when, um, well, I don't want to spoil it in case no one's seen E.T., but yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> um, I mean, you, know, you never you never know. It's it's a very heartwarming movie. And I just love that music. So I really noticed the music for that. Um, hmm. That's when it kind of, the, the, the switch flipped for me. Yeah. Uh, and now with all that said, how did you, how did vi- uh, video game composing come into your life? You know, it's funny because I know a lot of people now getting out of school or thinking about maybe what they want to do for college or graduate school or something are very much on that sort of video game music line of thinking. And I'm old. So video game music wasn't a thing (laughs) when I was coming out Mm. of school. uh, Even when I graduated from um, university of Southern California, like their film scoring program, like a graduate sort of, program um was in 97 i think there just wasn't the notoriety and kind of um opportunity that game music has today so i i got into music originally wanted to teach Uh, my my best friend now is my band director from high school he's only about 10 years older than i am and we're kind of like two guys cut from the same musical cloth. So I taught him all about John Williams and he taught me all about jazz. And basically we discovered Mm. that those are the exact same things. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And we even met John Williams together years ago at a, at a concert that he did. And it was completely magical and everything that I ever would have hoped for, but I digress. Um, (laughs) So I was going to do teaching and and that was not my bag because of the methods courses. You have to learn to play all the instruments. And I discovered really quickly in college that uh, wind instruments were not my thing. There's something about the vibration and the mouthpiece. And it was just like an instant, like almost throw it across the room the first time I tried to do it. Mm. Just did not gel with me whatsoever. But I really loved thinking back to like E.T. and then later Jurassic Park. Uh, and, and a couple of uh, Danny Elfman scores as well, and some Jerry Goldsmith scores. I love the idea of film music, so I decided to do that instead. And I did that for a little bit, film and TV and commercials. I lived in L.A. for a couple of years. Like I said, I went to University of Southern California, um, mm. moved back to North Carolina, doing independent film, like being credited. Instead of ghostwriting in L.A., I was getting to write original stuff with my own name, and the funny thing was, I was only gone from North Carolina for maybe three years when I went to school, but I came back and I was meeting new people who sort of saw me as this guy who came from LA, a, an LA composer, quote unquote. 
And I was like, guys, I grew up here just, just like you, right? Like, I mean, I was born in Georgia, but I moved up here like in middle school, essentially. So I've been here pretty much all my life in North Carolina, but they're like, wow, you came from LA and you did this cool stuff in, in LA. And that's how I ended up getting sort of the first gig for games. And it was literally just through networking. I wasn't really actively looking for it. And honestly, I didn't even really know that there was that much opportunity for anything orchestral, which was sort of my major background. Uh, I think metal, the first Medal of Honor had come out, right? Michael Giacchino. Um, Amazing. Mm, Yeah. Amazing score. And really immersive and and orchestral very saving private ryan-esque and i mean that in in, in the best possible way oh oh yeah stirring and atmospheric and i just love the writing um so there was a developer of all places in australia literally as far away as you could get from north carolina literally the other side of the world but they knew Mm. someone here in north carolina who knew someone and they needed music for their game. And it was like they had six weeks before the game was supposed to ship. And it just happened that the person I knew in North Carolina knew me as this orchestra guy from L.A. And they're like, oh, we knew a guy that that did film soundtracks, like orchestral film soundtracks in Los Angeles. He's here in North Carolina now. Maybe you should talk to him. And um, that was 2003. So it was this King Arthur game that was based on the movie when movie tie-in games were all the rage. So that was my first gig for games. Mm. And I went from, like in LA, a typical day in LA would be, um, I'm working for another guy and he says, oh, we're doing this commercial for Honda. So we do, you know, 50 versions of the commercial. And then they pick like version 9, 27, and 42. And you have to sort of stick them together and and make them work because that's what they like. Hmm. Or doing a movie trailer and you got to do 10 different versions. It's a lot of rinse and repeat, especially with ad agencies. You're doing the same thing multiple (laughs) multiple times for multiple days, (laughs) weeks, or months. And I went from doing that, like writing the same 60-second commercial for six weeks to writing 40 minutes of orchestral music in six weeks. Right. (laughs) Bit of a shift. And and it was like, it was like I'd been training for this my whole life and I had my orchestra palette down and I'd already been studying orchestration with VS, not VSTs, sorry, samplers, external samplers, but learning how to make the most of my samples and tweaking everything and recording my own stuff and getting the reverbs just right. And I was ready to hit the ground running and it really was like, um, you know, the clouds parted and the sun came out and the choir sang. And I was like, <laughs> wow, if this is what games are like, and it, and it wasn't, you know, give us 10 versions of anything. Everything was just like, that's great. When are you sending the next cue? Right. So <laughs> I really did a, I mean, I wouldn't say a like an about face, but I I went from trying to go after like the indie film gigs or the local here in North Carolina, which is a big, as you probably know, they're pretty big for production, post-production and um, commercials and all that stuff. I was trying to go after some of that Mm -hmm. local work. And then I thought, okay, who's doing games around here or anywhere else? Because this is so much more uh, fun and also fulfilling like personally speaking, uh, creatively fulfilling. Um, if only I could get to work with a real orchestra one day. That was kind of my dream. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and on that, like with, and I've talked about it on other on other episodes, but like, you know, for years I played video games and I didn't really notice the music. Right. But then I, once I, I started to, it was this whole world of like incredible music that I just could not believe was there, you know, and it was like a whole new world to explore and a whole new part of the, the medium to get into. Yeah. It's like you've, you've unlocked this door of like a whole entire new house of things that you didn't even realize existed beforehand. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, on Michael Giacchino, I, I think I got to his music maybe around the time he did, he did up. And I can't, I was like, oh, I wonder what else this guy has done. And I I was, I loved those Medal of Honor games growing up. And so I was like, oh my gosh, yes, makes sense. Um, But uh, anyways, uh, so now talking about some of the, 
different projects you've worked on. Of course, Dead Space is a big one, which is, you know, like the sci-fi horror series. What what was the process like of doing that? Because you've done, you know, uh, games like Tomb Raider and, and Far Cry Primal, which are a lot more, uh, I, I guess, naturalistic and, and textural, whereas sure. uh, the Dead Space is more like open and uh, dark uh, and electronic. What what was the process like of of doing that game or the 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 series rather? Uh, it was it was an incredible ride, that's for sure. Um, it, it was one of those things that my agent at the time was sending me different sort of pitches for different games, and I don't remember around that time. It was two thousand six or so, a couple of years before the first Dead Space came out. And I think the only real direction they had was um, it was a scary game. And I think they tried to see if they could get Christopher Young to write music for them. And I studied with Chris at USC. He probably still teaches there and he's incredibly generous with his time and such an amazingly talented composer. He even let me borrow his conductor score to um, Alien, Jerry Goldsmith's Alien. He handed wow. it to me because I was the I was the annoying kid that was twenty minutes early to every class and and stayed twenty Same minutes here. late, right? And had a thousand questions before and after. So he he thought my name was really funny because it's Graves. And of course, we were doing, I think it was a Hellraiser cue when he was teaching at USC. You know, you rescore something that had been done before and mm. then he can give you some feedback on it. So he thought my name was really interesting. And uh, I was just trying to learn more about horror stuff. And I actually came from a very 20th century kind of minimalist, modern kind of background from undergrad. So I was all about 12-tone rows and serial music and all this very conceptual kinds of ways of just putting notes together that don't necessarily sound pleasing (laughs) in in, in theory. (laughs) I don't want to insult anyone who's like, oh my gosh, I love serial 12-ton rows and they sound (laughs) pleasing to me. Um, But it's not necessarily tonal, let's say that way. So it was real easy for me to throw some stuff together, but I wanted to know more about what he did. And he gave me the score to Alien and said, like, Jason, this is everything you need to know about scoring horror music. And it was, I think, 10 cues. And back then, you couldn't get anything the way you can now. Um, There were no PDF scores. There were no published official scores. Uh, It was like, kind of like opening that door to the world of game music. It was like, oh my gosh, this is literally the recipe book to what Jerry Goldsmith used for Alien, which is one of, (laughs) uh, I mean, Planet of the Apes, definitely, as well. There's so many great Goldsmith scores, but for scary stuff, it was incredible. And that was sort of my introduction to scary music. So as soon as the EA people said, Christopher Young, you know, in a, in a two second movie flashback, all that kind of filled my brain up real quick. Um, And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Like I could do, I could do, uh, I could totally, totally work with something like that. So I put some demos together and they liked the demos. And um, the the funny thing with the game is EA, they were using their own, their own audio engine uh, or music engine, I should say. And it had been used hmm. on a game uh, invented basically for this game, The Godfather, which was based on the original Godfather films. So they'd given it uh, like one spin around the block and they were trying to improve on it. But the neat thing about it was you could play four stereo, basically streams of music all at one time in- independently of each other with volume and filtering. And I think maybe even some reverb. And in 2006, this was completely unheard of. Basically you had music in 2006 that would start and stop in games and maybe they'd have a, a, a stinger, like a crescendo with a big chord that would kind of be streaming in RAM to come over the top to help with some transitions. And, and that was about it. Right. But with The Godfather, they had, I think it was two voices, maybe two of these stereo voices, and they'd upped it to four 
for Dead Space. And then when we went to Dead Space 2, they actually doubled that and we had eight stereo voices, which was crazy over the top. But um, four voices and they wanted the music to be completely independent and interactive with everything in the game. So like real-time response of these four layers, like uh, like you had a four-channel mixing board and you're just moving the faders up and down, kind of depending on what's going on in the game. There's always music playing on all four channels. It just gets the volume turned up and down, right? If, if it's super suspenseful right. or if it's just like really ambient, there's always music playing. But the trick was in 2006, there was no way to use computers. You know, I mentioned perfecting my samples and my hardware sampler and all that when I was working on King Arthur. It hadn't gotten that much better in 2006. <laughs> that was only like 2002, I guess, I was doing King Arthur, maybe 2001. So we're still stuck with hardware samplers and, um, you know, not a lot of choices when you want to do aleatoric kinds of music, which are those, it's not a specific pitch. You hear something, it just sounds like a kind of a cluster of sound, or it sounds like everyone's playing something a little different, this kind of skittery kind of sound. Um, That's the horror aspect of it that comes into play. And you can't just pick a violin sound off the computer and and hit a key and expect it to do that. So the real trick was how to put this score together. And I said to the audio director in a very like, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> the only way you're going to have control over all this music for four independent layers and 120 minutes of music is if you let me record all these crazy effects and sounds and like transitional pieces and, and short notes and long notes and phrases um, ahead of time and then cut them all up and put them in the computer, basically build my own sample library. And then I put the music together with those samples and send you that final assembled music. But mm. I knew he would never go for it because it's like, I mean, you, everyone wants to hear previews of everything and I can't just hold a piece of paper up like a zoom meeting and go, here's my idea. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) See how the lines go down. That means the string players are going to go, or whatever. Um, yeah, but he just shook his head and said, okay, let's do that. (laughs) And, and it was sort of like enough rope to hang yourself. Like, it was the literal definition where he just said, here's the live budget. Uh, you know, go record wherever you want. You record anything you want. Um, what do you need? Six months? Great. I, I look forward to seeing the first uh, piece of music delivered in, in six months. And he wasn't doing it in a being a jerk or trying to apply pressure. He was doing it in a, Jason, you do your thing. I'm going to leave you alone. And it was honestly terrifying. <laughs> I, I bet. Yeah. And now... Uh, Along with terrifying, was there also excitement there that you you had such an open palette as well? It was very, very exciting. Um, The first thing I did, of course, was I called everyone I knew in L.A., um, the the, the team that Chris Young works with, uh, like his orchestrator, orchestrator, um, uh, Pete Anthony. Um, I called uh, Elmer Bernstein. The very, 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 very first game I worked on was Wild Wild West, which was like a a DS was it maybe Hmm. um it was a it was a handheld like lo-fi version of the of the score um but I also studied with uh Elmer Bernstein so I went out to LA and got the scores and um met with his wife and she got us to go to the uh, I got to go to the recording session and sit and watch them record it and it was it was super cool so I called Elmer's team basically any strings I could pull to find out what to do with um, what was essentially, I think it was eight days of recording an orchestra, hmm. whatever kind of sounds I wanted. And um, everybody, I mean, even I remember Pete Anthony was super nice and he said, yeah, if we're doing a double session, like six hours of recording, we might have 10 minutes at the end of the day and I'll just get them to do some, you know, get the strings to do some aleatoric stuff. We'll, we'll sample it real quick. So we've got some filler there. Uh, no, I've never written it down. And no, we've never done it for eight days straight. That's that's like crazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so it was, 
both daunting and exciting. And I ended up doing three different recording sessions just so that if I completely fell on my face for the first one, I would have two more to sort of make up for it. And it also meant I only needed to prepare for about a third of the session instead of, you know, the the full enchilada. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, ha- with the, the later installments of that series, has it been really exciting and interesting to try and, like, uh, not not reinvent, but continue the 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 franchise's sound and, and music. Absolutely, I, I think I think Dead Space Two is probably one of the most enjoyable experiences I've had working because I'd already kind of run the gauntlet in the first one, and I knew all the stuff that I wanted to fix, and I had new ideas for other things. So it was kind of the best of both worlds. I was still a little scared because the first one got a lot more attention than I ever thought possible. So then it's sort of like, well, now what? I mean, now they want me to do another one. And EA just sort of went like, yeah, you just do that again. <laughs> That's they had like zero, you know, zero help whatsoever. But what did help considerably, uh-huh. what always helps. And I don't care if you're a film guy, a TV guy, a game guy, or all three, uh, they're all going to say this um, or girl anyone's going to say this, the, the material, the story, the game, the plot, the character arcs for Dead Space 2 are the only reason I was able to write, you know, different music than Dead Space 1. It was, it, it, it made it a lot easier because there were just new things. It was a new game. So I was able to literally pick up where I left off and just sort of continue the journey. Yeah. Yeah. And with, uh, I'm always curious, like ha- having worked on these, you know, big franchises like yeah, like Dead Space and, and Tomb Raider and others, do you ever feel pressure from the fan bases? Because there are huge fan bases for these games. Do you, is that something you think about or is that kind of out of your mind because it would kind of psych you out as to what people might be expecting? That's a, that's a good question. Um, well, I think no matter how much fan pressure or 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 studio pressure or any kind of pressure there is i i'm always going to be putting more pressure on myself um not willingly of course because the last thing i need is to feel more pressure but i think there's something right. <laughs> you know um any 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 artist because I've talked to people in so many different mediums, we all have that same kind of inner drive to improve and to learn. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that the, you know, the three minute cue I wrote today needs to be the best cue I've ever written compared to everything else. But I would like to think that there's something new in that three minute cue and that it has been improved. If it's a, let's say a combat track it's just a little bit better than that combat track I did last week. Or um, if it's a sequel, maybe it's a little bit uh, more creative and like ties into the game a little better than than that combat track I wrote for the first game. Um, that being said, Tomb Raider was definitely a, a high bar in terms of pressure. And right, it's it's funny because I'm actually a terrible gamer, like really bad. I mean. <laughs> I'll be sitting with the audio director. This happened with Tomb Raider. I'm sitting with the audio director and he's like, here, hands me the joystick. And, you know, first of all, the the Y axis isn't inverted or whatever. And then the buttons are backwards from what I'm used to. And I'm walking in circles and he says, look up there. And I look down (laughs) to the ground and I'm just feeling like an idiot. Right. But I'm I'm the guy that walks into a room and he's like, okay, now go to the door on the left. And then through there, you'll see a, a weapon cache. And I walk around the table and he's like, no, that's the door you just came in. And I'm already completely <laughs> turned around. Plus I get a little motion uh-huh. sick. So it's kind of like not, not good. Um, so I'm really great at watching my kids play games. Um, and a lot of times they're not first person shooters. Cause that definitely helps with the, uh, the motion sickness. But um, so I hadn't played a lot of the Tomb Raider game. I hadn't played any of the Tomb Raider games. I'll just go ahead and say that. I'd seen a friend of mine showed me like the third one, I think, for like 15 minutes. And I was like, that's real cool. But I was completely unfamiliar with the music. And I remember thinking like, finally, my 
inability to play games is going to be a benefit for myself because uh, right. Crystal Dynamics didn't want a, a remake of the original theme. They wanted something completely different. And they sort of raised their eyebrows at me and said, do you think that's something you could do? And I was just like, oh yeah, I can give you a completely original theme. I promise, because I had no idea what the original theme oh, sounded like. <laughs> now, what's funny is... Um, after I was like halfway through the game, I think I went and listened to maybe the very first, uh, there was like a suite of themes or something from the first game. And it's a very beautiful, a uh, pastoral, uh, sort of simple theme that just kind of goes from like the root note, uh, down to the seven, if I remember, and then back up to the root, um, in a very simple way, very elegant. And I remember the first, like, exploration cue that I was going through with Tomb Raider, with the audio director, there was an oboe that came in and just played, just outlining a chord, just played a little thing. And he sort of snickered. He's like, I like the subtle nod to the original theme there. And I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> but see, that's the happy accidents with music, um, you know, and I'm not going to, exactly, yeah. I'm not going to discredit him, right? Like if, if he hears the original theme, then fantastic because there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, I I think it's great. Yeah. Uh, and I I wanted with uh, talking about Tomb Raider, I, I wanted to make sure to to pass on to you that when that game came out, I I had kind of drifted away from games, and I I came across that, and I was like, okay, I'll I'll you know I, I'm interested. I'll, I'll I'll give it a shot. And that game truly it was the game that kind of brought me back into like the beauty of video games and it, it it still is with me today as being the one that like that's has really stuck with me and and your music being a part of that i just Aww. wanted to tell you that i i do hold that game very close thanks henry that's really sweet yeah. it, um that yeah they poured their heart and souls into that game um it feels like it <laughs> i mean they really for a franchise as big as Tomb Raider with the legacy that they have and the fan base they have, I was pleasantly surprised that number one, they wanted a clean slate, no redos of the themes. And then number two, they sort of said, I mean, I did, I got the whole song and dance for them, like a whole day's worth of presentations at Crystal um, in uh, San Francisco. And the idea was there weren't any temp tracks or preconceived notions of what the music should sound like. And I didn't demo for the game. I, I didn't submit any music. They just, they reached out to me and said, is this something you would be interested in doing? And of course it's Tomb Raider. So I'm like, yes, that sounds, that sounds really yes. amazing. <laughs> so then they were saying, well, what do you think the music should sound like? And knowing that they were talking about it being different and original and wiping the slate clean, uh, a lot of what I wanted to do, which you hear in the game was starting simple and which starts with that main theme that I wrote just on the piano, starting really simple and not having the number one wall to wall music just all the time, you know, where you walk into a room and obviously something gets triggered and the action music starts, even though you don't even see any mm -hmm. bad guys yet. Uh, I wanted it really custom crafted for every, I mean, I mean, every single scene in the game, like got specific music and then it doesn't get really, really big until the end, because the whole point of this was she's just starting out, right? It's an origin story, right? She doesn't know what she's doing. She's uncomfortable. She's a lot more than uncomfortable a lot of times, and she's getting hurt and she feels weak and vulnerable. And the music needed to do that. I feel like if if it had come out of the gates with these huge taiko drums and giant brass blaring and everything for her first combat encounter, the game would have had a completely different feel. And I feel like it would have uh, kind of like bludgeoned you over the head with the same thing over and over and over. And for Crystal to allow me that kind of restraint to pull back and not even have any big drums until like the very end of the game, like the last, you know, eight or 9% of the game. And then it really kicks in. It's almost like the, the big payoff that you'd been waiting for. And I mean, super props to them for, for doing that. And I feel like it was, it was a risk in a good way, but that it ultimately paid off. Yeah. Uh, and the, there is a track, uh, it's called a survivor is born. And I, I, 
I love that track because it starts out with this really cool, like orchestral inspiring sound, but then it ends with this very delicate piano. Yeah. And I, 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 I love that very, uh, I guess, big contrast between just, you know, moments in the, in the track that I think, um, I think you might be the, uh, hit the nail on the head accidentally, Henry, because that, I believe, if I remember correctly, that was my number one track on Spotify this year. Was that oh, there specific go. track? Because I think okay. it has <laughs> um, it has everything that people want when they listen to you know film, TV, or or game music. Um, because it does, it gets nice and big. But it's got the build right. It's got that sense of exploration. That was the very last track in the game before it went to credits, and it's when she's basically just kind of looking forward to her next adventure. <coughs> um, and I still remember doing it because I spent a lot of time on it. All the, all the drums and percussion and everything were me were played live. And uh, there wasn't a live orchestra on that score, but it's all my own custom samples that I've recorded over the years. And that was the first project where I had kind of unleashed my samples on everything so it's like literally uh, most people think it's a live score b- because they don't recognize the samples. It doesn't sound like, right. you know, a certain kind of stock sample sound. And that's great. I think that's that's wonderful. But it wasn't a um, an arrogant decision like, let's not use live orchestra. My samples are better. It was just a question of budget. And they wanted to do originally about an hour's worth of cinematics with live orchestra and then have the rest of the game mm-hmm. scored with uh, not live orchestra. And to me, that's uh, like the first big no-no for any project. Um, you wouldn't do that on a film. It'd be like, okay, we're going to do the, the the action scenes with orchestra live and then everything else just, uh, you know, make it up in the computer. You need to have some cohesion there, right? Especially if you want to tell... Yeah any kind of a musical story. So I said, just take the live budget and throw it towards more music in the game. And I'll do everything basically by myself. Uh, I'll be your orchestra. (laughs) I'll be your drummer and your percussionist and your sound designer and, and everything else. But we got a lot more music in the game that way. And I think the story and the experience is far richer for it. Yeah. And uh, with having done a lot of games at this point, is there but I mean, besides doing doing the music, of course, is there a part of seeing the game or the process that you enjoy the most? Like maybe seeing a whole new world that someone has created. Is there a, is there something else that sticks out to you while you're you're in the process? Yeah, it's, there are definitely two things that immediately pop into my head as soon as you ask that. And the first one is that intangible sense of uh, infinite possibility when you first look at the game. I mean, we can talk about it. Like, let's say you're a developer and you're working on this game that sounds like the coolest thing in the world, uh, but you're going to get me a Steam code or you're going to get me a dev kit or you're going to send some QuickTime movies so I can watch it. And I have an idea of what the music could do, but it's really that gameplay, even concept art. It, It just, the whole picture is worth a thousand words. You get sparks flying everywhere and all these different ideas for for textures and themes and different kinds of instruments that I could use. Um, But that's matched equally by whenever a cue that I've finished and probably labored over and thought this isn't what I wanted and I don't know if this is right and all the usual things that us creative people go through when creating something new finally seeing it in the game or hearing it in the game, I should say, but hearing it against the visuals. And even if it's temp sound effects is like the second set of sparks, because there'll be a lot of confirmation there, but also a lot of like, Oh, okay. Now I didn't realize that let's say, um, you know, that weapon sound was going to be a minor third lower than originally, um, you know, Mm -hmm. or that the, Oh wow, that boss is a lot bigger than originally, you know, things change, which is just part of, making anything, but you get both motivation to go do a new queue and also excitement to kind of perfect the one that you've already sent in. And then of course, inevitably you run out of time. There's never enough time to do everything, but it's like that 
every time those two things happen, a new level for a game and then hearing some music that you did in a previous level comes in and it's just this, it's like a, um, um, like pistons firing, yeah. you know, get, get, getting the engine running and everyone in games are just so creative and collaborative and they're always looking for what's best for the game. It's like this big team effort. Um, Mm-hmm. So I work really closely with a lot of the sound designers, uh, depending on the size and scope of the project, to really get things honed in and, and sounding and feeling the way that they're supposed to. And sometimes I'm, I'm on a fourth, a fourth game now going on something like eight years with a developer. And, you know, you mm-hmm. have this relationship that gets strengthened and built on everything else that you've done. And it's always like next adventure, next adventure, but both day by day, but also project by project. And the only downside is besides running out of time is if you compound all that excitement by three or four or seven or eight with different projects and various stages of development, it can sometimes be a little overwhelming to try to keep up and keep them um, separate, but equal and also um, not let them sort of bleed into each other. <laughs> if you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh, in terms of the the process, I, I did want to make sure to touch on uh, Far Cry Primal because I know that there were some pretty rare, unconventional instruments and sounds uh, <laughs> used for that game. Yeah. Well, what, uh, how did you uh, come about, you know, those, uh, those sounds? Well, here's one right here. And I know we're podcasting, but of course you and I are yeah. cheating because we're also uh, video chatting. So we are, <laughs> um, Far Cry Primal was so cool because there was a, a general pitch from Ubisoft about what they thought would sound appropriate. And of course me and my AAA first, uh, you know, uh, personality, just took it to the extreme and I wanted to produce an entire score that literally could have been made when the game took place. So, you know, pre bronze age, um, no metal at all, which Mm. is a fairly flippant, easy thing to say offhand. Oh, well, let's just do a bunch of sounds that don't have any metal in them. But when you start thinking about it, I mean, any modern instrument, orchestral, uh, woodwind, brass, percussion, cymbals, it's all got metal in it. You don't want to do anything with electronics. So really, it it's kind of the epitome of what I love about games is I went super, 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 super extreme and said, I'm going to make music with dirt and plants and rocks and like goat horns, uh, you know, a ram's ear and just all this crazy kind of prehistoric sort of things. Um, and of course Ubisoft was just like, great, (laughs) go for it. (laughs) Um, so it sort of became a thing like vocals. Yes. Um, like flutes, wooden flutes, bone flutes. Yes. Um, stuff like this, uh, which is, uh, Oh wow. They're, uh, hooves actually had that for the longest time, but that sounds very sort of um, prehistoric. And then the thing that I showed you, which it's it's small enough to be basically like a, a really big medallion that you would wear around your neck. It's called an Aztec death right. whistle. Wow. And it's, that is it, awesome. I mean, it looks as scary as it sounds, doesn't it? It looks like a skull yeah. that's screaming and has fangs. And it's, it's just big enough to fit in the palm of my hand. But if I blow on it, I'm going to back away from the mic because they're really loud. All right. That's Man. what it sounds like. Um, That's cool. And of course, I would turn the microphone down and basically play it right into the mic. But the idea is these, these Aztec warriors would have them around their necks. And then when they went and decimated a tribe, they would then blow. Each one of them had one. So imagine like... 80 guys with weapons and these things around their necks, then they'd all blow the death whistles to indicate to the next tribe nearby, like we're coming for you next. Jeez. Um, <laughs> that's was the whole purpose of the death whistles. Um, so yeah, stuff, stuff like that. And then lots of, I ended up making a lot of organic 
music out of, I'm a drummer, so out of plants and wood and bushes, I set up you know, a drum set. Like if you're at a concert, you see there's a drummer and he's got cymbals and there's a couple of microphones overhead and he's got mics on his drums and mics on his hi-hat and stuff. I literally set up a prehistoric drum set. So instead of cymbals, I had these two tall plants. I mean, exactly like something you'd get at, at Lowe's or Home Depot. A <laughs> microphone on each one of them. I mic'd them just like I would a drum set. And I, I built a table that had a kind of hollow middle. So if you if you if you hit it, uh, it would make this like boom, like this real low bass resonance. And I had firewood and and seashells and uh, clay pots. And if you suspend those terracotta pots, even the th- same size of three pots, they're all going to be different pitches. I think I had like seven or eight terracotta pots that were suspended that I would just tap with um, like either wood or my fingertips. Um, Probably my favorite thing is I broke a terracotta pot, wrapped a bunch of string around all the little broken pieces and dangled them from the end of a big piece of firewood. And it made this like, Hmm. like really loose, rattly kind of sound. So it was all just um, sounds like that. I would drag a brick across my stone floor in rhythm right? And it would make this thing. I literally had a bucket of dirt that I mic'd with like a $5,000 microphone. And it's the best sounding bucket (laughs) of dirt you've ever heard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, uh, can I ask, where did you get the Aztec death whistle? How does one come by, come by something like that? Um, so I got, I got this one. I think I got off eBay, but it took like eight weeks or something. Um, there's, Hmm. The first one I got is a lot more impressive. It's this. Oh, yeah. And it literally looks like a full-size skull. Of course, the mouth has to be open because that's where the whistle comes out. Um, But there's a guy in Arizona, I think, that makes these out of resin. And it sounds... (laughs) It's got that same kind of sound to it. Um, Yeah. That was actually someone at Ubisoft had been doing all kinds of research on the game and... They found out about the death whistles because they were considering using them uh, for one of the tribes because that's what they did. And it ended up just being like way too crazy because they couldn't have, you know, 50 people blowing them. But he's like, oh, we should totally put it in the music. So that's what we did. That's cool. Uh, Well, uh, uh, Jason, uh, is it okay if I ask you about a few more things? I don't want to take up too much of your time, Yeah, man. It's all good. Okay. Uh, well, uh, one game, uh, I did want to make sure to ask about was the order 1886, which is this like alternate history, like steampunk game, uh, which I I mean, that's like that genre and that style is like one of my favorites. Mm -hmm, And I'm so curious about how, how that, uh, how did that project come about or, or how did you go about making that music? That was such an amazing experience from beginning to end. Um, the, the, the company ready at dawn is incredible. And I believe, was that the first thing I worked on with them? I guess it was, I've done two or three games with them now. Um, but the, the order, it was one of those things that some of these games can be two, three, four years in production before, they even think about doing anything with music. And fortunately with the order, as with dead space, as with tomb Raider, uh, you might notice a little bit of a, um, similar thought structure here. I was brought in early for all of those and it wasn't necessarily to like start writing music immediately. It was because the creative director or the audio director said, well, let's get a composer involved so that they can, you know, construct and evolve what the music's going to be as we construct and evolve all of this gameplay. So I was involved with the order. I mean, it was like three years before we even did any recording. Um, it went through a bunch mm. of different changes and um, improvements every single time. But ultimately, they had this one word that they used to describe the game, because I always want to talk emotionally about music. I don't care if I'm talking mm. to you know John Williams or Christopher Young or the art director who doesn't know a kazoo from a bassoon. Um <laughs> I always prefer talking emotionally. And I not to 
I'm going to go completely back to the very beginning, but I remember when, oh, fine. Uh, when Alan, my friend, ex-band director, and I were sitting, we watched Williams uh, rehearse with the orchestra before the concert. We went there for the dress rehearsal, basically. That's how we got to meet him. And he would occasionally stop. Um, he started Star Wars. <laughs> like, bah! He's like, okay, yeah, you all know how that goes. All right, next cue. It's like it was the Pittsburgh Symphony. They're they're amazing. But he would occasionally stop and make comments to the violas or to the second trombonist or something. But it was never anything like, you know, bar, bar 26, uh, mezzo forte, let's make that a, a fortissimo. And um, on the crescendo, a little more piumoso. But he he never used all those musical terms. He would literally say things like, um, violas, that, that second phrase... Um, when the melody comes in, like at 46, can we get a little more emotion? I'm, I'm, he didn't say emotion, but he would use some very <laughs> colorful adjective. You know, a, a little more right. push, a, a little more uh, love, a little more something uh, out of that phrase. And, you know, just, just he would describe it tenderly and emotionally. And the musicians knew exactly what he meant. Um, so... That was just a reinforcement of what I've always tried to do because I don't need you to say the flute's too loud. You could just say, it sounds a little too cold or um, is there any way to make it darker? Or, you know, those are easy things for anybody to understand. That way Mm -hmm. you don't need to have a music degree. Um, I got all excited about John Williams and we were talking about the order. So let me... (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) The one word. Now, this is what I love though, because um, Ready at Dawn, um, Andrea is the the, like CFO or CTO. Oh my gosh. CTO. Uh, He's like the, the super geeky, smart guy that like writes the code for their physics engines and stuff. Um. And he looks like The Rock. He's a bodybuilder, like weightlifter guy. Oh, he's yeah. <laughs> huge, but he's Italian and he loves opera and he'll cry at the drop of a hat if you start talking about music because he's so sensitive. So he, of anybody, could have easily, like he could have literally broken into Italian and started being like, piumoso, con molto, no, fortissimo, <laughs> you know, done all the, like all the Italian musical terms. But yeah. um, he said, wait. That was the word that he used to describe what he thought the music should embody was a sense of weight. And if, if you played the game, you mm. understand that because these characters are like slightly immortal. Um, they've taken up, you know, a, a cause greater than themselves and kind of sacrificed, um, you know, ties to family and friends and stuff like that. So they're carrying this, this weight. So that was the translation that I used from emotion to instrument to think, well, what can I do to make the score feel like it has weight to it? Um, not sound like it, because it's easy to make things sound heavy, right? You just use a lot of bass, right? And then, mm-hmm. then, it, then it sounds heavy. But it needed to feel like it, even if it was quiet and in like a medium register or a high register. How do you make that sound like it has weight? And um, as I usually do, the first thing I wanted to do was just throw out any instruments that seemed superfluous at the time. And um, violin seemed like a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's just get rid of all the violins. Um, because then you've automatically... If you, if you lose the violins, which are normally about half of your players in a string orchestra, because the smaller the instrument, the quieter it's going to be. Therefore, the more of those instruments you need for their single line to balance with the rest of the kind of four or five sections in the string. So no violins and beef everybody else up. So it's still, you know, 40 yeah. or 45 string players, but there aren't any violins. So... First of all, a really cool thing with that is if you have uh, extensions on your double basses, and pardon me if I'm getting too geeky here, but the double oh, basses- Oh, no, you're, you're fine. Please do. Please so the do. double basses are the big guys that stand up in the back, right? And normally they go down yep. to a low E, but if, you, if they have extensions, they go down to a low C. I always play, I always write with my double basses on that low C extension. So- when you lose the violins, you've got violas, cellos, and basses with their extensions. All of them, their bottom notes are C. So their open bottom string are all C. Um, right. 
So most of the cues I wrote for that score were either in C, C sharp or D. <laughs> so we were always <laughs> taking advantage of the lowest strings possible. And then I also did a lot of um, experimenting just on the lowest string. So normally, once you get up three or four notes, they go to the next string, three or four notes, they go to the next string. So it gets lighter and thinner as the strings go up. And for most of the score, they're performing everything on that bottom thick string. So even if they're playing mm. one of those middle register notes or one of those high notes, instead of playing it in a kind of a low register on a thin higher string, they're playing it really high on a thick string. And it just has this like thick, strangled, weighty kind of quality to it. Um, mm. There were so many other things that were so much fun to do because Sony published the game and Sony's audio team is absolutely incredible. And they literally just gave me a blank check and said, well, where do you want to record? What instruments do you want to use? Like, do you, uh, I mean, do you want to use any choir or, and I was like, okay, okay, okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Abbey Road and okay, we'll go to the big room in Abbey Road. No, no, no. I don't want to go to the big room in Abbey Road. I want to go to the small room in Abbey Road because it's like tight and punchy. I want to pack this room with all these low instruments and just like feel the air pressure resonating with, with everyone playing in the room at the same time. Um, and they said, uh, okay. And that's what we got to do, which was super cool. I that's mean, cool. I could talk about the order for another 30 minutes, but um, mm. I don't want to like have people falling asleep because it gets too technical. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I mean, uh, well, I mean, I mean, we, we can, uh, I can indulge. I mean, is there a- anything else in particular about that one that I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a ton, but is there anything else about the order that is that was? And it's okay if it's geeky. I love geeky. I, okay. I'm, I mean, I'm the, the same way, so I'm okay with it. <laughs> uh, well, I can, I can, I can do a like a synopsis basically because everything about that score was just a dream come true. I mean, obviously, recording at that studio, I'd been there before, but I'd never been in that room. The musicians were yeah. absolutely amazing. We had, um, I think, twenty or twenty six uh, choir uh, person choir all males starting with like the contra alto or something like that down to something called like sub basses or something. They like sing lower than like a bass could sing. So the, the wow. everything was written in the bass clef for the choir. <clears throat> um, we had no brass whatsoever, which an orchestral score is usually going to have brass, but you know, brass is first of all bright and also kind of overly heroic and, Mm-hmm. I was trying to basically rid myself of any knee-jerk musical reactions I would start writing to. And of course, I'd be like, okay, trombones and tubas down in the... I didn't. I wanted the score to sound really, really different. And I wanted to have the experience of doing something different. So throw out all the brass. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with woodwinds, uh, usually you've got 10 or 12 woodwinds in a big orchestra going from the teeny tiny piccolo all the way down sometimes to like the contrabass clarinet or contrabassoon. Um, a lot of orchestras don't have those instruments. Uh, we had six. <laughs> so I had um, <laughs> three contrabass clarinets and three contrabassoons along with three bass clarinets and three bassoons. So we had 12 of what would normally be maybe two in an orchestra. We had 12 of these guys all playing on the back row, mostly doing either unisons or octaves. But the sound that you get is just this like, like this just really monstrous, weighty, breathy kind of a thing. And all the effects in the score that you hear of these kind of rattly, shaky, breathy kind of things, those are all those contra winds just shaking the rafters. And it was funny because the guys... (laughs) Woodwind players, especially like if you play contra bassoon, you also play bassoon and you also might play English horn and maybe you even play a little bit of oboe and maybe some flute. You've got all of these instruments at home and you're called on for various things. And all you know is, okay, well today I'm playing oboe. You don't know what the gig is, who the composer is, who else is showing up. And I was out in the hallway and, um, the three contra bass clarinet guys, I think all showed up within about 30 seconds of each other. And everyone started getting, sorry, sorry, uh, uh, like pulling out their phones and looking because they thought they'd brought the wrong instrument because there were three (laughs) of them. 
I mean, you never use, <laughs> you never use three of them. And they're like, I got contra and right. I walked up and I was like, uh, Hey guys, I'm, I'm Jason. Um, I'm the, I'm the composer on the session. Relax. You're all fine. <laughs> We're using three contrabass uh, clarinets or whichever ones they were. And they're like, Oh, okay. And it kind of went from relief to like, a little bit of a question, like really to like more excitement, like really? And then they saw right. everybody else and, you know, 12 of these guys, it's just, it was a very cool sound. It was a very cool experience for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Jason, I, I love talking to you. Is there anything else? I mean, I'm sure we could, you know, talk for hours about uh, all your different projects. <laughs> or, is there anything else in particular or... Uh, or anything recent that I haven't brought up that you would like to discuss or have we covered some of the major, major points? You know, that's really the trick, isn't it? Um, any, anything that we can talk about is like at minimum 18 months old that I've worked on. Um, the, the mm. NDAs are so ironclad these days cause they want to make sure that all the information goes out in due time, according to the publisher. Um, let me think, um, um, well, I can think and of, it, and it's a, yeah, yeah. there's two, two, so two things that we can wrap up with. And I think they're a good, like diametrical opposition to each other. And they're both okay. very current. Like they've both come out in the last uh, month or so. And, um, the first one is uh, little hope, which is a super massive games release. And the score is, um, mostly based kind of like Far Cry Primal was Stone Age. This is like late 1600s Salem witch trial period. Ooh, so yeah. um, I sort of did my thing, which seems to be my recurring um, paint myself into a corner until I freak out and think that I've gone too far and then slowly realize that it's exactly what the game needed. Um, I was like, okay, well, this is going to be all live and it's going to be all like detuned instruments and, and, and vocals and, and percussion. I'm not going to, I'm not going to edit anything. I'm not going to use any plugins in the computer on anything. I'm just going to record what I get and what comes out comes out. And, um, I had like Bode Saltery and Hurdy Gurdy and, um, all these like dulcimers and, cymbalons and uh, cellos and double basses, tons of percussion. I even somehow talked my youngest daughter into singing on it. So she sings the main oh, wow. theme and then she does cool. all these like ghosty vocals and things. So that was uh, super terrifying yet very cool all at the same time. <laughs> and I, I believe that you can... Um, you can buy the album if you live in Europe, but all those us in the States are just kind of um, stuck because they haven't released the digital version yet. I'm not sure why, um, but I do have some tracks on my website. Oh, cool. So that was fun and a very, very cool experience. And then I can contrast that with uh, an, an online game that's free to play called Warframe that I've been working on for, I don't know, maybe... It was, I started earlier this year and that's about as far away from little hope Salem witch trial period as you can get because it's very cool, like synthesizers, drum machines, orchestra, um, lots of fun, like technological, uh, basically the way my daughters say robots fighting in space. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> To the point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, probably every six weeks they call and I do a new suite of music for them, which is kind of like an explore track and a combat track and, um, some cinematics and things like that. And that has been an absolute blast. Um, I think the most recent one was heart of Demos. I've actually never heard it pronounced before, but they have updates all the time and it always has new music and it's just a complete trip to be able to literally go from one day playing out of tune hurdy-gurdy <laughs> and like crazy guttural chanting um, to getting like my old Roland synth from 1986 and going through some guitar pedals like into some distortion and reverb. Like right. that, that's what I love about music in general is it's so up in the air. Um, you can do so many yeah. different things, right? Yeah, yeah. 
It's, I mean, I mean, that's what really comes through just in this conversation is, is just the exploration of, you know, the worlds that you, you know, the, the video game worlds. And I think that would just be so create creatively stimulating. It is. And it's all about the game. I, I swear if, 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 if you were like, uh, Hey Jason, it's, it's Henry. I I've got, you know, a million dollars and I want you to write an album for me. You've got a I year. Wish. I'd be like, Oh sweet. And then you'd call me up like 11 months in and go, Hey Jason, it's Henry. What's going on? And I'm like, I have no idea what to do because there would be no roadmap, right? It's all about that game or that film or that TV show. Um, but there's something about games not being scored to picture. Now, obviously, cinematics and games, I think I did 90 minutes of cinematics for Far Cry Primal. That's like mm. more music than a feature film. Um, mm. But cinematics aside, there's something about video games just saying, hey, we need a five-minute exploration track. And here's the level, and here's some artwork, and here's the goal of this particular level, and at this point in time, your character is here, and go. And you just have five minutes of music to do, I mean, really whatever you want. And I found the more you push and pull and come up with interesting things and sort of make the music tell a story, the the more intriguing it is for the player when they're playing the game and the music like gets quiet for a second and then you hear the sound and then it takes a turn and starts building up and maybe the player's just walking around, but they're like, wait a minute, what's going on? Like what, what's, oh wait, the, the, the music just do that because I saw that, you know, um, the, the sunset was going down and like the whatever popped up on the screen and like all this stuff kind of goes into play. Just like the, Hey, I like your yeah. Tomb Raider reference. It's like, sure. <laughs> Happy accidents, man. Um, yeah, I think that's why I love games. Mm-hmm. And uh, J- and Jason, I promise if I ever have a million dollars to make a game, <laughs> I will make sure to have a plan for you before I. <laughs> OK, great. Before I start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you, just, you just put that cash in a suitcase, drive on over here from Hillsboro and we'll have a talk. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Quick drive. Yeah, quick drive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, Jason. Well, man, I mean, uh, thank you so much for for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Uh, totally my pleasure. And you know what? Um, you can't see this from the video, but I'm actually in my master bedroom right now because for the last seven months, I've been trying to get this new studio built. Uh, it looks like it's going to be finished in a couple of months, but I've been saying that for four months now. But next mm. year... 2021, when the studio's finished and uh, some of this lockdown stuff is over, uh, we should plan on some sort of an in-person podcasting thing. That would be like totally fun because you could come over here, uh, see the place. We could like geek out about film music and game music and everything else. It would be a blast. Man, I would I would love that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I I mean, that's 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 what I want to do. So uh, thank you very much for that. Um, All right. uh, And and yeah. And uh, Jason, please, you know, stay safe and take care. All right. I know these are trying times. So just stay safe. Okay. absolutely. You too, Henry. Thanks, man. Uh, All right, everybody. Well, we we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And we'll see you (laughs) next time. (laughs) 